Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we're back. Back to talk about another film. A, a new film. We we had something totally lined up and ready to roll and decided to backwalk pivot. that a little bit and pivot to be current, to be in the moment, if you will, and discuss the freshly released at this point, just a couple of days old, new Hellraiser requel, re- reboot call, um, revival call, redonquel <laughs> on, on Hulu, a, a direct to Hulu film. We're not going to call it direct to video because that's an insult. It's direct to streaming, which is cool and prestige. Um, but yeah, we, we checked this out. I was, I was admittedly very excited for this Hellraiser. Um, we've talked about Hellraiser on the show before, mostly during our Lord of Illusions episode a while back, which was another Clive Barker joint. And, um, I, I have a lot of affection for the Hellraiser series. Um, I wouldn't say it's my favorite horror series, but it ranks up there. Uh, especially as as most people in the Hellraiser fandom would tell you, especially the first two films uh, involving Christy Cotton and 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 her her family of destruction. And uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I I like what Hellraiser does most of the time. I think it's a very unique mixture uh, in the horror landscape in terms of. I guess we'll call it sexy slash terrifying, right? Horny terror, whatever you want to call it. Uh, which, again, as we discussed with the Lord of Illusions episode, is kind of Clive Barker's speciality, right? Like, that's what that dude does better than anybody else. Um, and so this reboot got on my radar uh, probably about six months ago. I knew it was in development. I knew it was in development, but hearing that a Hellraiser film was in development was, was really not something worth paying attention to. For a long time. Oh, they're making another one. Is this another $70,000 head down to Baja and film something in a weekend? Hellraiser, like the last three? <laughs> or was this going to be something serious? And fortunately, this one falls on the side of serious. Uh, this is a, I don't want to say a true sequel to Hellraiser, but the first time that I think somebody actually put a little bit of time, a little bit of energy, and most importantly, a little bit of money into the Hellraiser franchise. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Hellraiser 2022, as it is being referred to, directed by David Bruckner, who I think is a sort of rising star in the horror scene. Um, maybe maybe not my first pick as a director for a Hellraiser film, but I, I think some of the things he does in this are pretty cool, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, uh, starring uh, Odessa Azion, who it's worth noting is the uh, daughter of Pamela Adlon. Uh, and if you're an animation fan, you know that Pamela Adlon was the voice of Bobby Hill on King of the Hill for the entirety of its run, but an accomplished comedian in her own right. So this is her eldest daughter making one of her largest acting credits up until this point. Um, we watch a movie, uh, a TV show on Paramount Plus called Ghosts, which is in and of itself an adaptation of a BBC show called Ghosts. Um, but the American version, there's a um, the basic premise is that it's this couple that has a B and B and they find out there are a bunch of ghosts there. And so they just, but the girl can see the ghosts. And so they kind of work together 
And uh, in one episode in the first season, they go up to the attic and they find like a dead prom girl up there. Like she died. And apparently when you're a super young ghost, you spend most of your time sleeping up until a certain point or something. doesn't really matter. Um, but that was Odessa Ezion uh, in that as well. And she, she had a cute little, you know, guest starring turn. Uh, but yeah, so uh, this, I wish I could say that I had an unqualified recommendation. I will say heartily that if you have been a long-suffering Hellraiser fan, this will probably satisfy you more than anything else that's been produced in More o- than Hellraiser Revelations? Uh, or Hellraiser Judgment. Uh, <laughs> you love that one. The ladies who eat the list of sins out of a trough is a... Wonderful addition uh, the, to that. The film. Hellraiser franchise has <laughs> jumped so many sharks at this point. All of the sharks, yes. Um, I feel like that should be like if you if you search on Wikipedia for jumping the shark, like it should redirect to Hellraiser. It Just might as well. Thing. Yeah, it, it would be it would be two entries. See Fonzie, also Fonzie actually jumping the shark, <laughs> and then Hellraiser. Um, so I guess let's walk through the Hellraiser franchise real quick. First one comes out late 1980s, uh, the original Hellraiser directed by Clive Barker himself. So, you know, it was really one of those Clive Barker by Clive Barker presents a film by Clive Barker produced by (laughs) Clive Barker. Like it was just one of those things. He had very little money. Um, a lot of studio interference that he fought heavily against pretty much from start to finish by all accounts. Um, to retell the story of one of his very famous short stories called The Hellbound Heart. And uh, it's... Hellraiser go. is maybe one of the finest examples of how the fuck did this get made? How? Mm-hmm. How? Who allowed this? Who sat down and read the script and said, I'm in? <laughs> like, I want to uh, yeah, be in no, that it's... room. I want to know what that was like. I want to meet all of the people who made this happen, not just Clive Barker, but like the people who just saw this and was like, this is a good idea. People will love it. And the, oh, and like, the horror community did love it. I love it. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it immediately found a, a fandom within horror in the late 1980s um, because it, it also is this interesting horror franchise. I, you know, the, the basic premise of the first film uh, is that there's this box, right? It's a puzzle box. In the original films, it's not really a puzzle box. They just kind of run their fingers on it and then shit happens. But whatever. They do address that in this film. And they, it actually is an actual puzzle box, even though that too is kind of unnecessary. It doesn't really matter. Well, it didn't. It wasn't a very challenging puzzle. No, it's not supposed to be challenging, right? It's just supposed to imply that you're the challenge invested. challenge comes afterward. <laughs> yes, very much the after part. Um, but it, it was this sort of low-end horror production that got a lot of mileage out of very little. But the, the basic premise is this guy, Frank Cotton is a hedonist, right? He lives this hedonistic lifestyle somewhere. He finds this puzzle box when he's overseas, he comes back home. He opens the puzzle box. We only get a glimpse of what happens, but it involves chains and hooks and skin ripping off and all kinds of, you know, it's scary, very horror, scary things. And then he disappears. Then Several years later, his brother and his uh, wife, uh, or well, I guess step, it's it's his, his second, second wife. wife. They move in. Uh, his uh, college-age daughter sort of comes into the story later. 
And in essence, we find out that the the second wife had a brief affair with the brother, um, a torrid affair, one might say. And um, they they kind of fell in love, but she settled for the much more stable brother once Frank you know disappeared or whatever. Um, so I mean, like really, it's the story of her literally feeding Frank his his dead body in the attic in essence because uh, like the dad cuts himself and a little bit of blood gets on the floor and it sort of reconstitutes some bits of Frank Julia discovers it and she decides because she had this relationship and she loves him that she's going to bring it back to life so bring me blood vampire style and I'll reconstitute and, and really that's the bulk of the the horror of that movie is watching the various states that his body goes through that's kind of the bulk of the middle part but then, of course, um, you know the the Cenobites come into play, and uh, who their their hell priest, who that is the the primary way that he was uh, referred to in the first one, but the hell priest eventually came to be known as the horror icon Pinhead, uh, which because the hell priest has a head that is inserted with pins, right? Like well, you the know, Cenobites as you do were really really scary. Um, yes. I was one years old <laughs> when this movie came out. Yes. And we had a I like, didn't watch it that year. No, no. Well, I mean, if <laughs> I, I might have, later. I might have been in the room, but I, <laughs> I have no memory of this. Uh, but I do remember seeing it as a very small child because we had a, like a, a VHS rip. Sorry, yeah, it was a VHS we were pirates. Copy. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I remember watching it. I'm pretty sure I watched it with you. And it was just horrific. I was so scared. Um, the entire concept of scary pinhead was scary. Just absolutely stuff of nightmares. I think I did have nightmares about pinhead. But I loved it. I don't know what that says about me. Um, Maybe I don't I- want to know. Yeah, we don't need to unpack that here on this fun entertainment podcast, I think. But no, I I think it speaks to what Clive Barker is capable of doing, with which is terrifying and tantalizing in equal parts. And, and again, this is something that I believe, uh, as both a director and a writer, Clive Barker executes better than most. And so I think that's part of it. You know, like you have, there's, there are, I think that people come to horror films for various reasons, right? The, the typical slasher genre of the 1980s that was very popular. I mean, Freddie was blowing up at this point uh, in 87. Uh, Michael Myers was on like, you know, this was like his fourth movie was coming out around this time. You know, the, the Jason films, you know, you go to those generally for, for the boobies and for the murders, right? Like that's what you go to those movies for. And you know, in that's various, what I, that's what you know, I go to movies dispensations, for all the time. right? No, the boobies <laughs> and the murders. For me. <laughs> and I mean, how much boobies, how much murder? That's what we need to know going in. I don't need common sense media. I need how many boobies, how many murders media to tell me. Well, we've got seven boobies and you know, only seven because she just had part of her shirt down. Sorry. Um, it's but with with the Cenobites and with Pinhead, you get. A, you get Clive Barker just slathering the film with BDSM concepts, right? Which, despite what people may tell you, is is not an uncommon sexual kink for people, 
right? Like it's, it's a relatively large group of people out there um, who enjoy BDSM as part of their, their sexual lives. Yeah. And we're I not here to Barker, talk about those people specifically. Uh, no. And I'm not I, here to, yeah. I mean, Hellraiser, I don't know. Um, it's not like, that's not what the movie is about. <laughs> that's not even what the story is about necessarily. It's a part of it, but it's not all of it. No, no, no. It's it's a background element. It's a visual quality, right? And I think it comes from, I mean, Barker, if you do any research on Clive Barker, Clive Barker was a sex worker while he yeah. was doing most of his early writing. Um, I have no doubt that he has extensive experience with BDSM. I think for him, that is something that is both luring and tantalizing. And I think he just worked it into the visual language of the Cenobites and in, in how they present on screen but then also the conceptual, you know, sort of driving force of the Cenobites, which is the intermingling of pleasure and pain, right? For the Cenobites, pain and pleasure are the same. They are equivalent. And so the maximum amount of pain that they can inflict correlates with the maximum amount of pleasure you can experience. So this is the sort of like messed up worldview that Clyde Barker is throwing out there that has a sort of tantalizing, like, huh, I wonder about that quality. I, I'm interested to know more about that intermingling. And, you know, and again, it's not a focus of the film. I, I mean, you know, Frank is a hedonist, right? So he has, you know, searched the, the bowels of the earth for pleasure and whatever, you know, we see, basically we see him sitting in a dark room smoking. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the hedonist lifestyle, apparently. It's like opium um, den type of right, hedonist yeah, pleasure. Right, it's like, oh, and all the opium dims in China, you know, or whatever. But really what what I think the original Hellraiser represents more than anything else is is much like we've talked about with a lot of this sort of cult films in this this podcast that we've addressed, is that it's sort of a perfect lightning in the bottle scenario. You've got a solid script by Clive Barker. You've got some really strong performances. I mean, Garrick from Deep Space Nine, Andrew Robinson, <laughs> is, is one of the leads of this film, right? And low-key Andrew Robinson is an absolutely great actor, right? He can do a lot uh, with very little time. Uh, Claire Higgins plays Julia, and she is fantastic. So you've got a really solid script with a really fascinating structure that, quite frankly, would never be greenlit today. Like, this script would have been sanded down tremendously. Um, And then you have this kind of slow burn buildup to the reveal of the Cenobites and the Cenobites in the original are extremely mysterious. Nobody's named, nobody's talked about, right? They just appear and they're terrifying and they do terrifying things. And, and then it becomes a sort of chase film where Christy Cotton, our, our protagonist at that point in the film, you know, the latter half, really, she's just trying to escape and, and trying to save her dad, which, you know, doesn't really work out and escape from Julia and Frank who have, you know, truly lost their minds kind of thing. So it's, it's a lovely little thing. It really shouldn't have worked, but it does. I think people were pretty ravenous for slasher icons at that point and understand the Cenobites do basically nothing in the first Hellraiser movie. Yeah, like, like they're like just Doug there Bradley for vibes. points a couple of times. <laughs> I, I think there's a hook maybe like, doesn't he, I think he might hook somebody briefly in that one with like a meat hook or something, but it, they're they're very much like background elements. Again, he he didn't even have a name. He was just called the Hell Priest, 
in the original credits, right? The Pinhead moniker came from the fandom, not from the film. Uh, I think, like, in so, production, they called him Pinhead. Yeah, they yeah, had to was come like, up with a name for... They had to what? bring me the Pinhead costume or whatever, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it's I time think, for Pinhead you know, to make the entrance into the scene. Because it obviously hit Fangoria and, and magazines like that, and so, you know, there were a lot of production stills. And I think that's probably where a lot of the initial success of Hellraiser came from, is that it was it was basically marketed for them in the special effects and visual effects trade magazines because it was, it it did have some really solid um, special effects makeup at this time. Like it was, it looked really good. The Cenobites were extremely visually interesting, Um, you know, and, and so, I mean, all of that kind of worked in its favor. So Hellraiser two releases, um, it does. Okay. The studio wants a sequel, but they want a lot more control because they assume pretty rightly so that they're going to need more money to do um, to do a sequel. But we have lots of problems with the original Hellraiser. It was one of the films that was cut down extensively. Car- you know, Barker's original cut was X-rated um, for um, pretty obvious reasons. Like <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in here. A lot of it um, had to do with violence, of course. Yeah, Like just um, gore, just straight up gore. Yeah, just like, um, I mean, I think there was a close-up of Christy sticking her hand into Frank's stomach and, like, pulling his guts out kind of thing. You know, like, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, Then, uh, of course, the the sort of big scene in the film, or or one of the big horror scenes, is Frank Cotton, the the villain of the piece, if you want to call him that, really, uh, being torn apart by the Cenobites' hooks. Like, their main thing that they can do is kind of, like, chains come from nowhere like magic chains <laughs> and they they embed hooks in you and then they like pull your flesh apart right? cenobite and magic cenobite chains. magic it's chains and hooks love the chains love the hooks and you know it was just very um i mean we're in in britain which is where this film was produced this was a, a british production for the most part we were just coming out of the video nasty period really kind of on the tail end of it and so british censorship of horror films was at an all-time high and barker really had to fight to get even something relatively close to his vision for the film you know not just produced but just released right and so it, it was a big deal um you know barker's talked a lot about that experience he it sounds like it wasn't a great experience for barker like he did not have a good time directing this film and maybe that is part of it too maybe that's why this film feels kind of nasty is because by the time he was assembling the final edit he was pissed off and i can totally believe that so it's it's hard to say but needless you know regardless of all of that the film comes out and on a million dollar budget it makes like 15 which for a horror movie at that time was tremendous success right like nobody would have expected it to do that well so they make a sequel that pretty much continues Christie's story um, directly. It's it's pretty much a direct sequel to the original. Um, Barker did not direct that one, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do not think... He was involved as producer, but he did not direct that one. Again, because it, he had had such a such a terrible experience um, on the original. Yeah. That one was directed by Tony Randall who would uh, 
come back to to work on the story of some of the later sequels but um so yeah Clyde Barker is still part of the the story he doesn't write the screenplay for two but I think because it basically continues the story of the original most fans of Hellraiser see one and two as kind of like a single thing like they kind of go together and two is inferior to one but it's pretty close but then the series just takes a sharp turn towards Shitsville, right? They're going down the highway at a good clip and they see the exit for Shitsville and they say, you know, I think we're going to get off and, you know, go to the restroom here. And then they just decided to stay and live there for Build a house. Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to settle down in Shitsville. Um, so we get a, a string of sequels directed by randos, um, starring randos. Of these movies. Including this new one, yes. Yes, there are and, 10 Hellraiser films. And while I really enjoyed the first one, I don't think there needs to be 10 of these. <laughs> what what they missed, the opportunity that they missed, was for the 10th one to do what all 10th films in large-scale horror franchises do, and that is go to space. That's what they I wish. Of course, Hellraiser already, to already went to space. Yeah, like, Hellraiser which one was 4. that? Oh, uh, that was four, Bloodlines. <laughs> um, I, I have, okay. All right, so let's let's break it down. So Hellraiser 2 continues the story of Christy Cotton. She goes into an insane asylum. There's a crazy doctor there who gets a reference in this one we'll talk about. Um, there's a crazy doctor there. Crazy doctor knows that the Cenobites are real somehow, like some kind of research. And then he does to Julia what Julia did to Frank. He resurrects Julia from the mattress that she died on in one. So that's silly from the get go, but whatever. So um, he resurrects Julia. Julia convinces him to do the murders. Um, he kills a bunch of homeless people, summons the Cenobites, and then it becomes this big uh, chase through the Cenobite labyrinth, which is a big part of this current film, which is supposed to be like where they live, right? The, the, the producers decided to really run with the puzzle idea with Cenobites, right? Like everything about the Cenobites is a puzzle. So they live in a labyrinth. There's another weird puzzle box thing that floats above it that they call some kind of God. Which Just trying to give them some personality. Give them some give depth. Give them something. Explain them a little bit. So that one happens. It's fine. Hellraiser 3 comes out and um, it stars uh, another DS9 veteran, <laughs> DS9 alum, Terry Farrell. Um, and, and it focuses on the daughter of an army captain who had encountered uh pinhead. We, well, we get to see the origin of pinhead that he was in, in the army. He too was seeking pleasure. And, and so we f- basically find out that the Cenobites were all at one point human who got converted into these Cenobites. Um, and then there's uh, Terry Farrell's like a reporter or something. And she's investigating murders Three is super forgettable. There's a there's a Cenobite in three that hurls compact discs. <laughs> if that tells you anything about the depths that they were plumbing to try and come up with, you know, crazy shit. Um, then four was supposed to cap the series, right? Because in three, they start hinting at the box itself, where that came from. Like they, they started trying to expand upon the lore of the Cenobites pretty heavily. And so four 
really goes into that and we get it's really almost a double narrative where we see Le Marchand, the guy, the toy maker who created the box and what happened to him in like the 1700s or something. Um, and then like his descendants who are sort of like mystically tied to the box. So really we get like, there's a story in the late 1700s, a story in modern day with like an architect who doesn't realize it, but he keeps building boxes in the buildings that he designs. <laughs> and then I know it's just ridiculous. And then we get a future story. We get the Hellraiser in space story of another descendant of Lamarchand building a space station oh, that yeah. is also a box and, and then using it. I forget the, what was the, the Elysium configuration, right? Cause the box is called, the lament configuration and then Lamarchand builds the Elysium configuration, which is its opposite. And so he uses that to trap the Cenobites in the space station forever. Right. But not um, forever because Hellraiser, Hellraiser will be five, back. Baby. <laughs> uh, now it's worth noting even though, okay, so I have a special affection for Hellraiser four. Hellraiser four is a terrible film. Like it is. Yeah broken up it's it, it's it is bad. one of the most obvious examples of studio meddling in history it is an alan smithy film because mm-hmm. the original director kevin yeager disowned it in the edit and just said i'm out so it is one of the few films in history that actually bears the alan smithy name because the director said i do not want to be associated with this final product smart move 100 percent correct but it's it's a mess. But I, I still kind of love it because it is so stupid. Like, it is so goofy. It is also worth noting that it, I, I believe it is the first film appearance, if not the first, it, like, very close to the first film appearance of Adam Scott. Like, Adam Scott is a baby in that movie. He's, like, 18 years old, and he appears in it. Um, of course, Adam Scott now on another career high with, you know, TV shows like severance and stuff like that. But it, it, it is one of his earliest things that he ever acted in, which I find hilarious. But anyway, so then Hellraiser four kind of ends that whole thing. And Hellraiser five is directed by Scott Derrickson, right. Of, of current horror fame. Uh, have you seen the black phone yet? Yes. Uh, that movie was great. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it. Immensely. Uh, and that, of course, is is a Scott Derrickson joint. But Hellraiser Inferno, also known as Hellraiser 5, uh, was not good. Um, it, you know, Hellraiser when you get 5, to the fifth installment you know, in anything, yeah. your odds at it being good, they decrease. They're, they're, they're going down pretty substantially. Yeah, like pretty, you did, pretty you're consistent not gonna, lowering. You're not going to get like a... This is just as good as the first one. Like, I've never heard that happen with the fifth of anything. <laughs> no. It's, it's pretty uncommon. Um, if you do any research into Hellraiser 6, or, or 5, excuse me, it was a script that Derrickson and a writing friend were already developing, by all accounts. So they already had, like, a, a murder mystery horror movie in mind, and then the studio brought them in and said, hey, let's make this a Hellraiser. Um, and so the Cenobites were the Cenobites in five feel like an afterthought for the most part, like they're, it, it becomes about torturing 
This is also where, unfortunately, we see the trend that unfortunately continues with this Hellraiser in that all of these movies post four, the main characters are either like murderers, addicts, junkies. Like, I don't, and that's not bad. I mean, that's a way to get back to this sort of like you're the person who opens the box is like this addicted to something and they're looking for the next high or whatever. Like, I, you know, I, I get that. But pretty much from this point on, all of the protagonists in the Hellraiser movies are total dickbags, like from top to bottom. Like they're they're not good people. And in a horror film, that's sometimes fine because they're going to die or at least most of the people in it are going to die. But I think one of the things that makes the original Hellraiser work is that Christy Cotton is basically innocent. Right. Like she's done nothing wrong. And so we want to see her live, right? It's that sort of classic filmic final girl trope, right? And and Hellraiser subverts it to an extent. I don't want to make it seem like, you know, she's perfect or anything like that. But it gives you someone to root for when the Cenobites show up. Because the Cenobites, for all intents and purposes, are kind of all powerful. And they can't really be beaten. Although this film introduces something that changes that a little bit that I'm not so sure was good, but you know, so you want that character to find a way to, to be successful. But if your character is a piece of garbage from the start, that makes it tougher. And, and unfortunately that has become the sort of like de facto starting point. Um, so five is about a, uh, like a police detective who's corrupt and he's trying to find a kid killer and he's being haunted by someone called the engineer, which you can tell is all from the original script. And you know, it's, it's fine. It's, it's a watchable film of the Hellraiser sequels. It's decently well-directed far too many early, early two thousands, like white flashes and quick jumps and and shit like that. Um, You know, it's like pretty much every Hellraiser movie post three basically just a remake of REM's losing my religion video. Like it's just lots yeah. of white flashes, people standing in random positions, dissolves wipes, like just it, it, they all look very music video esque. And, and that doesn't really change until this one really. So then we get to six, which is directed by Rick Boda um, and, and seemed like it was, they were trying to connect back to the original Christy cotton reappears um, for a very brief cameo, like she dies within the first like five seconds or something. It's, it's very short, but they were trying. Um, but the main character, uh, played by Dean Winters, the, the mayhem insurance guy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he has like a head injury, so he doesn't know what's real and what's not. Uh, so he's, he's mostly an okay person, but eventually, you know, the Cenobites show up and, and whatever. Um, and they start biting. and and it's and it's also a, a it was all a dream narrative. Like he was dead the whole time, and he's in limbo, and he's being tortured. So everything you just spent the hour and a half watching that wasn't that good to begin with, you're now just being told, oh, it was all a dream, and he was dead all the time. It's like, Any oh, movie that does this, sucks. God damn it, <laughs> yeah, automatically sucks. So it was it was direct to video. Like there was no theatrical release of six, and that was oh, I can't imagine much, why. <laughs> yeah, I mean. It, Shocker, right? <laughs> um, 
But I mean, that's that's pretty much what we get for the remainder of the sequels. Hellraiser Seven um, was called Deader. That was Deader. Yes, also directed by Rick Boda. Uh, this is about a, a reporter who goes to Bucharest, right? You know, so it's trying to get back to that whole like the box sort of lives in these dark, seedy places overseas somewhere. I guess that's a little bit of like you know, outside the nation panic, like oh. It's mysterious. Um, it stars Carrie Wurr, who was a, a, she had a moment or two where she was really popular. Um, she was in like the Beastmaster movies and stuff. But I mean, like that's the other sort of common thread that you see throughout these movies is that they have super low budget um, productions, super low budget casts, you know, maybe one or two people that you might recognize, but probably not. And and so she uh, is trying to track down another one of Lamarchand's um, kids who's now become the leader of some kind of weird cult uh, called the Dead, the Debtors. I guess that's the cult is the Debtors or something, and they worship the Cenobites or some crazy stuff. But it's it's entirely forgettable. Even as I sit here talking to you about it, I'm struggling to remember what happens because it is just such a non-starter. Like, I think just, I had pieced out. I don't think I've even seen that one. Like I saw the title and I was like, I don't think so. I don't, I don't <laughs> think I'm going to watch this. Yeah. That one's pretty rough. Um, the eighth one, which I've always just called Hellraiser, uh, world of Hellraiser. That's just what <laughs> I've always called it because it's, it's, isn't that the one with the all, matrix cover? Yeah, it's like the <laughs> Matrix cover. Uh, it's oh god, I, I I don't even know if I want to say what the summary is because it's so stupid. Basically, a bunch of people play World of Hellraiser, which is an online game called Hell World, and like a kid gets killed, of course, because I mean it's Hellraiser. Kid gets Computers, killed. The friends blame themselves. They will fucking kill you. And so they all get invited to a party thrown by the guy's dad, the one who died, played by Lance Henriksen. Like Lance Henriksen is the person that you'll know in this Hellraiser film. He's the only one, but whatever. He throws a party. Someone else is in this one. Um. Oh yeah. What's her name? Oh, I'm thinking of a man. Who, Who are you thinking of? Henry Cavill. Oh, that's right. I was going to mention that. This is, that's right. Henry Cavill. For some reason, I kept thinking that it was Tom Welling, the one from Small. What I was thinking about it. But yes, Henry Cavill uh, in a a small role. He dies early, but, but uh, he is indeed in this as Mike was his name. My, how far he's come. Yes. From Hellraiser, Hellworld to Superman. Uh, which there is reporting that he his contract as the DC Superman has been renewed and extended at the job. personal request of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So uh, mm. we'll see. Uh, anyway, mm. so yeah, there, it's it's about an online video game. The dad's angry and he wants to see them all get killed. So he's like working with the Cenobites or something. It's it's bad. It sucks. It's painful to watch. 2005 and, was a dark time. Yeah, know? nobody had good ideas in 2005. No. I, I really no. think it was just uh, it was just all downhill from there. <laughs> but then we get 
Hellraiser. We actually get two more films in this. Uh, we get Hellraiser Revelations, directed by Victor Garcia, which is kind of a found footage film, I think. There's a little bit of that in it. Um, but Hellraiser Revelations is barely worth talking about. A, it was the first one that didn't have Doug Bradley as Pinhead. Doug Bradley said, no, I will not return. I think it was really more of a budgetary issue with Hellraiser 9. Um, because they made this movie for nothing. Because this is the, we have to retain the rights Hellraiser film. They hadn't made a Hellraiser movie in um, five years. And there was something in the contract that said if they didn't release a Hellraiser, I think it's every six. I think that is the the industry standard for franchise films. Because um, I think if you look at the pacing of the Spider-Man movies, it's roughly the same. Like a movie has to release like every six years on the dot mm. or else you lose the rights. And if you look at the spacings of when the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie stopped, which was like 07, right? The Andrew Garfield one came out in 2013 to fulfill the accommodation. So anyway, this was made for like less than half a million bucks. They just went down to Mexico or something and they shot it and, a and just <laughs> pushed it out the door. And it's bad. It's real bad. It's like two frat dudes who go to Mexico where they Again, I think this is where the found footage thing comes in. It's like they filmed themselves on like this drunken rager and then they disappear and nobody can find them. And so the families then try to figure out what happened and everything, you know, Cenobites, 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 whatever. Uh, it's terrible. It's it's truly awful. And then we get one more Hellraiser, Hellraiser 10. <sighs> and um, that one is Hellraiser Judgment. And I actually rewatched Hellraiser Judgment, which was the last released Hellraiser film prior to this one. I watched this, um, I forget where it was on. It was on one of the free services, Tubi, I think. <laughs> oh, Tubi, it's so good. Um, but I watched it on Tubi. It is 80 minutes long, so like almost the bare minimum to call something a feature I, film. I admire that. Yeah. I think that's like, great. Short's good. Short's not bad. And okay, this, this movie is nuts. Like Hellraiser judgment is so weird that I kind of admire it because you can tell they were trying desperately to do something different with the Hellraiser movies, right? The basic setup for a Hellraiser is a bunch of people get into trouble. They find the box, the Cenobites come horror, right? This one really tried to develop like how hell operates. So like the bureaucracy and then there's this like dude who's on a typewriter writing out your sins and then like. So it's more like it's, the afterlife in Beetlejuice. <laughs> there's like office it's, life. It's like a weird mashup of that. Right. And so like the first part of the film, there's like a, a serial killer or something they bring down and, and they, there's all of this like crazy imagery in it where I mentioned earlier, like he, they write out his list of sins and then a dude eats that. And then he, he vomits that back up into like a tube 
And then that goes into a trough. And then there are like these three women that I'm assuming are supposed to represent the fates or something who eat that stuff from the trough. And then they make some kind of judgment about your soul. And then based on the judgment about your soul, you either get tortured more or less. If you get tortured either way, like at least what I could tell, but the volume of torture um, it had some very interesting visuals. There's like this butcher character in it. Okay. So let me, let me throw this out there too. Um, Hellraiser. And this one suffers from it. Not suffers, but somebody at Hellraiser really likes the silent Hill series and vice versa as they should, as they should. And, and these Hellraiser films have gotten successively more and more silent Hill ish as they've gone along. In my opinion, Um, and this one may be the most, it's just so strange. There's a, there's like an inquisition in it. We, we don't have to get into it, It, but needless to say, Hellraiser had come to a dead end, right? Or a deader end. (laughs) And, and the franchise was tapped out. Like it's also worth noting that a lot of the Hellraiser's right. Hellraiser's rights were wrapped up in the Weinsteins, right? Um, Like Harvey Weinstein was still basically in control of the franchise when judgment was being produced and released. And I think now they have been, um, I, I think those rights have been taken from him or at least bought from him by other groups, which is good. Um, apparently, and I've heard this from a few different places that the Weinsteins, the film, the film franchise rights that they do hold, they are lording over people and refusing to relinquish for even vast amounts of money. So somehow the, the powers that be have worked Hellraiser away from that and away from dimension films, which was a subset of Miramax. Um, and, and so that's, I think why we're finally seeing this one is that the rights have been worked out. The franchise is trying to reboot itself under new management and sort of forget about all of this garbage that has been produced with the Hellraiser name on it for the last 15 years. It's like when a really bad restaurant in town has an under new management sign. Mm -hmm. And sometimes things improve. Sometimes they don't. Maybe certain elements improve. Certain pieces of the menu get a little better. But, the taco you know. truck that is the Hellraiser franchise <laughs> has slightly improved. Slightly improved. We've moved to a much better location. Um, so that's that's kind of like the Hellraiser series prior to this. And it's it's not a reboot. It, it is not an attempt to re. It's an attempt to restart the existing franchise and pretend that everything after two kind of didn't happen right Which so, I, I respect that yeah totally idea uh, i mean it's it's similar to what the current halloween films have tried to do in order to divorce themselves from the sort of endless terror of the continuity of the halloween movies and and honestly the the first of those just halloween uh, i really enjoyed i thought it was good uh, halloween kills is not good um, less good, bad. I, I don't know. Hard. There are a lot of words that I could say about it. There is a scene in it where a elderly couple who got a little drone are flying it around their house, and then Michael Myers kills them. Oh, 
that while they're oh. flying their little drone. I mean, what should oh. be the pinnacle of their existence becomes That's a moment of terror as the, their drone is destroyed. Uh, yeah, that movie is a bit of a mess. Uh, I'm hoping whatever this new one is, the Halloween ends or whatever is able to course correct a bit, but we'll see. But the first one, the just the Halloween remake was pretty solid. Okay, so we've talked a lot about bad movies. Let's talk about one that's, you know, less bad. bad. It's less bad. It's it's pretty good. So this new sequel, the, serviceable. There we go. Workman. This new sequel is deve- was developed by and directed by David Bruckner, who has become quite the little darling in horror circles over the last few years, uh, and to a certain extent, rightly so. Um, I first came to know him. He did some short films prior to it, uh, but I first came to know him from uh, the Netflix original film, or at least Netflix released film, The Ritual. Yeah. Which, um, which was set in like my home in, in Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> That's right. It's a bunch of American douchebags going on a walking tour of Sweden, getting lost in the fucking woods. Sweden is such a compelling a setting for, for horror films. Now, like if you came here, you would assume that there is something really, really unwholesome going on. Because why is everybody <laughs> so happy? Why are right. they all so There's relaxed? There's got to be a darker side to this. Sure. We're just having a fika. We're just we're just having a fika. We've got a coffee and a cannibalar. You know, <laughs> we're we're not stressed about anything. But then there's just a murder cult. That's right. Just waiting in the wings, yeah. waiting to come get you. So he did do a segment. I I did see there was that Bruckner likes anthologies. He's worked with the VHS series, but he mm-hmm. also did a one of the three segments of a film that did get a lot of buzz back in 07 called the signal, uh, which I did not like. Um, It was huge tonal swings between the segments and and in general, just the story was not compelling. It's about like some signal making people crazy, which was of course a super popular, you know, that's a very 2007 thing. It was a very late two thousands, you know, like cell phones are going to make us all go crazy. Um, he directed a segment of that, and that one was, if I remember that, I was the segment I liked the most out of the signal, but most of it was pretty unwatchable. Um, he did some other stuff, and then eventually, you know, got into feature films with the ritual, and uh, then followed that up with the night house, which I watched not too long ago. I had kind of held off on it, yeah. Um, and I enjoyed that one quite a bit. I think it sort of boffs the ending. Um. Yeah, it was a little, and, a little cheesy, a little uh, anticlimactic, a little yeah, maybe even a bit schmaltzy. It, it sort ways. of undercuts some of its darker themes yeah. and just kind of it has a, a very everything's going to work out fine. But you there's, know, but you can kind of see in the Nighthouse why someone would go. He could make Hellraiser. Oh yeah, like Hellraiser has. I mean, because Hellraiser is is terrifying and potentially horrifying at times, but it's mostly a vibe. Like yeah. Hellraiser as a series succeeds on whether or not you're able to strike the vibe of the Hellraiser series, right? The horny, sexy thing, or yeah. the 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 horny terror thing. Like that's that's really kind of where Hellraiser lives. And if you can hit that, you're going to be close. And after Nighthouse, which has you know a lot of sexual themes, it has a lot of sexual, you know 
sexual politics between the wife and the husband and how those have affected them and left them sort of cold and aloof. There's, there's a lot going on there and yes, it, and it's creepy as hell. Like it's very, very well done. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, so from that, you could tell Buckner got a little bit of prestige. Nine house was well received. I don't think it made a lot of money, but it, it got a lot of attention, positive attention. And so his, his, Screenwriters on that, Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski, had apparently been pitching a Hellraiser sequel for a while. They had an idea, they had a concept, and um, it's worth noting that David S. Goyer produced The Night House, and David S. Goyer produced this. Um, We have an ex... uh, I think every filmgoer has a long relationship with David S. Goyer at this point. Um, He's been around for so long, he's had his hands in so many pies... He's worked on so many projects, both good and bad, that um, your opinion of David Gore may be fully shaped by just the kind of stuff that he's done that you've liked. Uh, If all you've ever seen, for example, is Blade Trinity, you might think that he's a hack and capable of doing anything good, (laughs) Um, which that's totally not entirely his fault. But did you see Dark City? Did you see Dark City? Because that was good. That was good. Um, Did you see see the Batman trilogy by Christopher (laughs) Nolan? Did that you did you see good. Ghost Rider's Spirit of Vengeance? Because that was good. That was also pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's it's easy to say David Esquire sucks, <laughs> and, and yeah, if like, people feel that way, you can't because he's had his TV work in specific has been absolutely <laughs> absolutely terrible. Um, he has done a shocking amount of TV, and a shocking amount of it has been absolutely awful. Bad. But so apparently uh, Goyer, too, uh, who is credited with story on the new Hellraiser, where he contributed, how he contributed is not clear, Um, you know, but more than likely he was he was a consultant. I mean, I'm sure as a guy who has developed many, many franchises from comic books to horror to whatever, he had lots to say about how to to handle a a Hellraiser sequel. But um, so, yeah, I mean, the. Bruckner has made his mark. Um, I will say there are some really awesome, you know, moments in the ritual as well um, when he's lost in the woods and, you know, the convenience store props are sort of forming around him and stuff. There's Bruckner has a good eye for effects. He has a good eye for using them. Well, most of his camera work is stable, easy to read. You know, it's just solid work. And, you know, so once I knew he was attached, I got, more excited, right? Again, I haven't allowed myself to get excited about a Hellraiser movie in a really long time, but I was like, okay, this, this sound, sound good. This good, good choice, right? You know, it wasn't just another, because a lot of the people who directed the last few Hellraiser movies were just special effects and visual effects guys, right? They were just getting their first shot at making a movie kind of thing, you know, but here we get a guy who's got some experience. So that brings us to Hellraiser 2022. It is a Hulu original, so released directly to the streaming platform. Um, I'm assuming as part of the you know package deal that Disney did to get properties, Hellraiser must have come along with that because it seems like um, 20th Century Fox is is sort of firmly in control of uh, Hellraiser now. They're under one of those uh, distribution platforms, so. Okay, so let's get let's get into it. We've we've done enough enough prep work. Bruckner's good. He's got some chops. 
both of us get excited about the possibilities of a Hellraiser film handled by someone who isn't just a hack given $150,000 in a weekend in Mexico to make a movie. First impressions. Go. This movie is either too much or not enough. <laughs> um, some things I feel like it, it just didn't push enough. Um, the original Hellraiser is, is gross and it makes you feel gross and it makes you feel afraid. And this movie did not make me feel gross or afraid. No, what, what this felt like to me, and I, I agree on pretty much all the points, um, is I, I feel like one of the aims for this was to reposition Hellraiser as a horror franchise for the modern era. Mm-hmm. Right? To to not forgo the past or forget the past, right? Not their point at all. But to reposition this as a much more marketable and much more everyday teen horror-esque franchise because there are a lot of elements of this that have become very typical elements of the standard horror stuff that you see being produced. Um, so I think they're trying to reposition it from, from a franchise that for all of the good and bad that came with it was weird as shit into something that is much less weird as shit. Yeah. To make it more palatable, right? Something that if you've never seen a Hellraiser movie or you just kind of know what Hellraiser is in the background, it's going to satisfy that, but it's not necessarily going to leave you cold and like, or or grossed out. It doesn't feel like it fits with Barker's, Vibe. I mean, we've been talking about vibes a lot, and yes. this just doesn't this, have the Hellraiser vibe. It does not have the Hellraiser vibe, in my estimation. I, I think a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm you know in, in Twitter circles, you know, the film Twitter folks that I follow, very up on this film, and I and I don't disagree. Like I said, if in terms of Hellraiser, this is the most Hellraiser that's that we've gotten in a long time, and it's quite good. It's adeptly handled. It's shot well for the most part. It's a little dark, a um, little, little dark in the back half, um, kind of hard to see, uh, and not in a good way. I mean, like the original Hellraiser, there's certainly some obfuscated landscapes and 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 interiors and stuff, but mostly done purposefully. This one, it just feels like I, I, the one thing I'll say about Bruckner, and I felt this in the Nighthouse too, is everything that he shoots from a color standpoint is really flat. I agree. Like he's, he just has a kind of flat visual style. I mean, it's it's nice looking, and it's well, and, and the production design is well done. But even in the Nighthouse, I was like, this is just very flat. Like, there's just not a lot of dimension to his frames. Um, a lot of it, I think, is that there's a severe lack of movement. Most of his frames are basically static. Um, 
And, and it's just very strange. And it makes me think of the every frames of painting episode where he talked about kinetic movement in Kurosawa's films, like how there's just always something happening, whether it's something blowing in the wind or a bit of smoke wafting around, or there's always some visual movement in the frame to sort of keep things lively. And, and Bruckner is the opposite of that. Like everything feels just static and, and I, I don't want to say stale cause it's not that, but it, a lot of, a lot of, Stiff. Times in this is stiff. A lot of times when energy was necessary in this, like when the camera should have been building and pushing and moving and, you know, almost vibrating with intensity, it's just sitting there. Yeah. And there are some directors that can pull that shit off, right? Like David Fincher can pull that shit off, right? But you he know, still he moves knows his camera a lot. He does. He does. It, it may be locked down, but it's going to be moving. Um, as often as possible. And if, and if the camera's not moving, there's a reason directors will be moving. Yeah. Like other things will be moving. So I don't know. It's, it it was one of those things that I, I I just noticed mostly because I had time to, because one of the other things that's worth noting about this film is that it's, it's a bit on the boring side. And, And I hate, I hate to say that. Um, because I don't think there's, I can't point to any one element that would have changed that. But this movie lacks a certain sort of narrative flow that I think would have helped it a lot. A lot of it is because I, I, the the three acts of this film hit really hard. Like it is almost like you could hold up a card and say act one complete, right? Yeah. And then we've shifted into act two, act two complete, right? And it's, it's one of those things that, yes, that's just a standard sort of screenwriting technique, but I should never realize that we've shifted phases in the movie that hard. And this one, I really picked up on it. So, you know, my initial impressions, my initial response is mostly positive. This is like a really solid, even maybe high B for me. Like it's good. Um, it looks good. They make some really interesting choices. Even if you're a Hellraiser fan, there'll be some new things for you here. Some subtle massaging of the sort of visual look and style, you know, that you'll be good. If you're just a horror fan, if you just like horror movies and you've never really interacted with Hellraiser before, which I find difficult to believe, but it's possible. You know, if you're more of a new horror fan, right? You came in with the conjuring or something, right? Like that, that was your first bit of like, Oh man, I like horror movies now. Then I think this is pretty palatable to those folks as well. Because quite frankly, this movie's it's a little light on this, on the terror. Right? I mean, uh, that was my biggest beef with it. Um, I didn't feel afraid of the Cenobites at all. Now, I will say, mm, yeah. I really like Jamie Clayton as Pinhead. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That was, I, that was a good choice. Banger choice. Because um, I'm, I mean, I'm sure people know, like, Jamie Clayton is a trans woman, which mm-hmm. is really cool. Like, cast trans people and cast them in roles where they don't have to play, like, trans victims or stereotypes or anything like that that's cool uh but also like i just love her voice 
they do some cool shit with her voice in this. And and part of that is natural because after the movie, I looked up interviews with her, and ooh, she's got a sexy voice, and it really, mm-hmm. really worked with Pinhead. Yes, uh, one thing that can't really be overstated about Doug Bradley is is the the gravitas he brought to that character. I think that's why that character became became the icon that it did is mostly Bradley, right? Like he, there's a a quality that he brought to that character that I think is, is pretty timeless, right? It's, it's still and quiet, but full of menace, you know, like all of this thing, the things that, you know, it it takes a, a legitimate actor to pull off. And Jamie Clayton nabs all of that from Bradley. Like I don't have any issues with Clayton's performance as the hell priest in this, which they do just go back to calling uh, pinhead, the hell priest. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't have any issues with her, her at all. I, I think it's kind of inspired, right? Cause it sort of elevates the otherworldliness of pinhead. Um, as a as a horror figure right like it just brings another layer of we don't understand what this is right or yeah. who this might be um or you know if you look more into the cenobites and how they expose you for what you truly are right there's an interesting sort of trans narrative that you can play with there as well and and so like i you know i I had no issues like all of the people who were just like, you know, bemoaning it from the start and, Oh, they've ruined well, it's like they're, people they're, saying they wanted yeah. Doug Bradley to do it. It's like, he's kind of getting up there. Like, he's like nine. He's like 80. Give the dude a break. He can't play pinhead forever. No. And, and he shouldn't be asked to. And, and he hasn't done that character at this point in 10 years, right? Like he, he did not do the last two outings as pinhead. And, I think he's just moved past it, right? He'll still go to the conventions. He'll take pictures yeah. with you. He'll sign your headshots, right? Like he's, he's a lovely man. And, but I think he's done being that character and that's fine. Um, and you have he to was hand it really vocal point. about his support for Clayton in the role, extremely, which I thought was cool. Yeah, extremely. He was very much vocal on Twitter about, I think this looks amazing. He had a tweet that I saw the other day where he was like, Oh, the reflections on the heads of those pins are so cool. And it gives it this interesting new quality. Like he was just, he was all about it. And, um, and again, I have zero, I have issues with the design of the Cenobites in this film. I do, but Pin had both as, as the representation of the character and the performance that Clayton provides hundred percent great. Um, you know, I, I, cause Pinhead is not super active in this one. Pinhead is present and certainly does do things, but a lot of the other Cenobites, frankly, get as much, if not a little more, screen time. So, I liked the upgrade, the visual upgrade to the Chatterer. I thought yes. that that one looked cool, mm-hmm. or at least a the, cla- the facial prosthetic looked neat. It did, yeah. the The way that they peeled the teeth back and everything this time, I thought was was pretty good. As opposed sure. to just having, you know, face ripped off around its mouth. That just right. that looks, didn't look as cool. Yeah, it's worth noting that the, the BDSM elements of the Cenobites, the leather, the chains, the whips, the studs. Basically um, gone. All of that is gone. And and I, I have listened to several interviews with Bruckner at this point where he's talked about it. And they said, 
not in so many words that the idea was to sort of take them towards this more just like exposed flesh concept, which was always a part of the Cenobites, but it was always that plus leather bondage skirt, big pants, right? That kind of thing. And, and their goal was to move them away from that, which again, I think is part of that positioning Hellraiser as a somewhat more palatable horror franchise, right? Because those elements, while I think, you know, again, BDSM's place in modern society is much more open and honest it's, than it has it's been It's also before. an aesthetic that's a bit ironically used now. Like, it's, it's not as uh, effective as it once was. Ironically, given that they aped it so hard for Hellraiser Hellworld, yeah. in the post-Matrix landscape, Ooh. leather and bondage gear has a much different societal interpretation. Yeah. Is, it doesn't hit as hard as it once did. And so I am behind a filmmaker looking at the, the design of what the Cenobites were supposed to be, what that visual representation was supposed to convey to an audience, and try and reinvent that. I'm 100% for that. Totally cool. A lot of what I don't like here comes down to how Bruckner chooses to shoot it, frankly. Um, and the fact that when you do something fully practically, and I'm glad they did, there are just going to be some limitations. Mm. You know, like at certain points, you can tell it's a suit. <laughs> it's a silicone suit. Yeah. And is that bad? I, I don't know. That's probably going to be for everybody's That's obviously what the, the leather skirts and big boots were disguising in the other right. movies. The, right. We don't have the budget, and I mean, they really did not have the budget no, to to all. make prosthetics. Not not full body prosthetics. No way. No way in heck. And and this movie, while I think you know, the prosthetics are not bad. They are they are super high quality. They are very good work. But you know, when you show somebody's flayed genitalia, I mean. You, you're inviting criticism because it's yeah. like, I don't know if that's how that would look. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I don't have personal experience. Yeah. I, but, I don't either, but just looking at it, I was like, that looks fake. <laughs> it just, it, it doesn't convey. I, I think a mix would have been ideal here. I, I yeah. think, you know, if you want to push more towards the exposed skin and silicone, great. Maybe still have like a sleeve or a leg. And I'm not asking for my Cenobites to be wearing assless chaps. I, I don't need that. That's fine. But at the same time, it is a, it is a vibe and it's part of the Hellraiser vibe. And the fact that they just dispense with it completely, I don't know if it was the smartest choice. Yeah. There are probably um, more ways you can update that look without just removing it. Yeah. Um, which I will say, there's obviously a lot of thought in this put into how the Cenobites operate, like the technology that they have, um, which I don't think Barker was ever especially concerned about. Um, I don't, you know, good horror writers are cool with ambiguity, right? Like, you don't have to explain this. It's fine. scarier right? if you don't. It's scarier if you don't. It's scarier if it's just an element that you're forced to reckon with. And in this film, I think they go a little bit deeper to try and explain some stuff or, or provide background to some things. Not overt. I mean, fortunately, we don't get too many big exposition dumps. We get one at the end that's just ridiculous. But 
Um, you know, they, they're not trying to explain stuff, but they're using a lot with the visual design of the Cenobites to try and imply some stuff. And some of it works, some of it doesn't. Uh, we mentioned the Hell Priest's design. Um, the, the Hell Priest has a, a sort of vocal box. That like freaked a, me like out. A, a machine that sits on the, the larynx. It's, it's, like a, it's like a trach plug. Right. It, that, which that seems I have to be had, and yeah. that was that's horrifying. That was a really it's, nice touch, but it freaked me that good. hell. It's very freaky. Um, and it's, it's background and nobody explains it. Nobody points to him and be like, what's that? And you know, like, obviously <laughs> you can't, you can't have those moments. Cenobites are not going to be for <laughs> Like the Cenobite looks out the window and is like, well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> when I was a young lad in 1910, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yeah. Like it's not going to happen. Uh, it's it's a very but it is a backgrounded thing. And in fact, most of the Cenobites have a sort of mechanical piece or component to their look that is meant to imply that there's some sort of machinery. Like we've got there's a Cenobite whose flesh is wrapped around them. Again, if we want to talk Silent Hill, it's a patient mm-hmm. demon. It's just mm-hmm. a patient demon mm-hmm. from Silent Hill Two, which again is fine. But they've got like something that's tightening the skin and wrapping it around them. Um, another major character has like a mechanical contraption embedded in them, you know, so they're, they're trying to come up with these again, to move away from the BDSM component. It's becoming more about like mechanical manipulation of the flesh to cause pain. And it's like, okay, I get it. That's cool. It does provide a bit of identity to each of these, these characters. Um, you know, it works better in some than others in essence, but okay. So again, um, first impressions before we get into spoilers, um, this is a good Hellraiser, and it's been a long time since I felt comfortable saying that. Right. And I'm not really going to qualify that with much. It's, it's a bit more palatable for a modern horror audience rather than going for the sort of hardcore, sometimes discomforting and disquieting, uh, nature of the originals. But if that means that more people can sort of get into this and find some of the interesting things that make Hellraiser special in the horror landscape, then that's probably a net positive. Um, but it's a, it's a bit couched because it is a bit boring at times. Sorry, but true. Um, it's not boring without purpose. It's trying to do character building. It's trying to do world building. Some of it lands, a lot of it doesn't. Um, Bruckner is a very capable director, and there are some very good shots in this. There are some moments in this that are, are from a special effects standpoint, are impressive. Uh, anytime the chains are in effect, like when they're actually using the chains to to bind or torture someone, like those effects are really good and definitely better than Hellraiser is kind of ever had in terms of what those can look like and how those effects can work. But a lot of that's just technology. Like we've just figured out better ways to do that kind of stuff. So I don't know how much of that is like really the film being groundbreaking and interesting than just a, Oh, this is a, if we were going to do this in 1987, if we'd had all this cool shit, it would have looked cool too, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, so a, a, a thumbs up from me. I think this is good. It's a solid film. If you're a Hulu subscriber and, and a horror fan, You've probably already watched this, but it's worth a watch if you haven't. I, I think there's there may be some things here for you to really grab onto and enjoy. How about you? Um, 
Yeah, I I agree more or less. Um, it's it's definitely easy to watch. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't having a bad time. I was a little bored in parts, but I I overall I didn't walk away from it like oh that was a stinker or oh my god it was amazing. It was just it was good. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, okay, so let's let's get into some spoilers. Um, we're going to talk about the the film itself and sort of break down the major components. Uh, as we mentioned, this is not a a reboot of the franchise. It does acknowledge what came before. There is a scene um, that opens the film where we basically meet uh, an art collector, which again, very Hellraisery main character of sorts or major character, I suppose who is having a party and some people have been drawn to it. Some young people, there's a lot of hedonism going on. There's a lot of sexy times going on, but a young man who's somewhat uncomfortable with everything, uh, sort of gets lured into this chamber, right? Um, one of the, one of the more unique visual elements of this film is the, uh, uh skylight in that room. Um, because it is meant to to represent and look like the box, the lament configuration, uh, for reasons that we find out later are important. But this guy's drawn in. Uh, he finds the puzzle box in a new configuration, which is one of the biggest things that this film plays with, is that the puzzle box can change form as you complete it. Um, so the initial box configuration is the lament configuration. That's how it's been referred to all the way back in the short story. I believe that's how Barker referred to the box. And it's, it's meant to, to imply that, you know, anyone who solves the box will lament, right? You're going to regret what you're about to do, but you're going to do it anyway. Cause you're a hedonist addict jerk or whatever. And so he, completes the box. It stabs him through the hand, uh, a sort of spine or stinger stabs him through the hand. He begins to hallucinate. And then he is, is lifted via chains into the background while the uh, art collector takes the final form, which looks very much like the form that the box took in Hellraiser two. That's sort of like twin pyramid, elongated pyramid shape. The, the, the spike. Yes. Very good. Um, he takes it and then demands an audience, right? Um, because he's, he's earned his prize, right? Which he, he indicates in some of the dialogue. And uh, then we flash forward six years, right? So six years later, and we've got a new set of characters. Um, our, our main character is Riley, I guess. I think that's mm-hmm. the name. Uh, played again by Odessa Azion or Azion, however you would pronounce that. And uh, she is in a 12-step program, right? She is attempting to overcome addiction to what sounds like a bunch of different things, mostly pills and booze, but maybe more. Uh, She's living with her brother, who is gay and has a live-in boyfriend, and then they also have a sort of friend that is around. And so the the movie starts off with with some some, some fucking, right? We're getting getting some sexy times on. uh, Riley has a, a new boyfriend that she met at the meetings, which mm-hmm. seems like a, a bad, bad choice. Idea. Yeah, bad choice. Uh, and um, 
and uh, they're having sex in her room. They don't realize that her brother and everybody has come home and is making dinner. They hear some noise. They go out and embarrass, embarrass, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's fine. You know, whatever. It's a fine opening. Yeah, I guess it's a good introduction. Sets up a lot of things very quickly. Um, Riley, mostly at this point, what matters is that Riley and her brother have a very strained relationship. Her brother is very much trying to look out for her, help her make good choices. He's obviously given her space to live inside of his apartment. He seems much more stable, but Riley seems intent upon treading down, you know, bad roads and and on a bad path, regardless of his help. I, I will say a lot of the character interactions with this can be boiled down to people screaming at each other for very little reason. Yeah. Um, everybody <laughs> just seems really pissed off. Everyone's tense. All the time. And they're just screaming at each other. And I understand you want tension between your characters. You, you need to develop tension between your characters and have them be like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm angry about things. right? But it has to be earned. This just comes out the gate at that intensity and doesn't really let up. Um, things develop very quickly. Um, you know, the, the tensions between Riley and her brother roll back and forth, but it, I think Bruckner does a good job of establishing that the brother does care for Riley, that his frustrations with her are coming from a place of, I want you to be okay. I want you to, to make it through this. I'm trying to help you. Let me help you kind of stuff. And, and that's fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good motivation for that character. But of course the story has to happen. So Riley has to make bad choices. And so she is convinced by new boyfriend um, who she is really in- shifty and she keeps insisting that he's super attractive. And I'm like, uh, what? and like uh, the dude that you find out the back of the circle K maybe, I guess <laughs> like if you're just desperate for love and you found that dude who, you know, has a decent build and a shaved head. I, yeah, uh, I guess Justin Bieber circa 2009. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Well, I you mean, know, she it, she does do drugs. Maybe yeah, it's uh, most of her choices her senses. <laughs> so, in any case, he convinces her to go on a heist. Which I, I that was so, a little silly. This is a bit silly. It's just it's very it's a very convoluted way to get the box. Um, but I guess it does touch back to we see the an initial exchange where uh, some one of the art guys. Uh, assistants like his assistant goes and like purchases the box off of some dude in Serbia, which is where this was shot. I thought that was funny that they open up and say, Oh, this is in Belgrade, Serbia. And then they like, are like, now we're in Massachusetts. And I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not. We're not none of this architecture is Massachusetts. Close this is, enough. <laughs> this is all Serbia. She's they're on a street later. And it's like one of those old, like brick streets. I'm like, yeah, this we're in still in Serbia guys. <clears throat> yeah, there's nothing like this in Massachusetts. But anyway, um, so, you know, we see the, the handoff, the initial handoff of the art collector getting a hold of the box. And so they, they go on this heist. He says, oh, it's this warehouse there. I used to do deliveries there. You know, we can get in there's, there's some billionaire and he disappeared. And, you know, we'll have to just be so much money. We'll just have money everywhere. And so you know, she gets lured into this. They get there. There's just a single safe inside of the shipping container, which again, all of this is shot. Well, it looks nice. You know, the, the single safe sitting dead center inside of this thing. It's very cool. Very creepy. 
But it's just a silly conceit to get them there. Just to get them there and, and to find the box. So they find the box and then I'm not, there's some things happen later that would imply that our, our boyfriend character here knows more than he, than he should. He's shifty. And I'm, I'm not sure how this plan was supposed to work. Like what this plan even really was. So anyway, they, they find the box. She becomes kind of drawn to it, obsessed with it, which again is a, it's a pretty common reaction to the box. Like people are drawn to it. They want to mess with it. Um, so she keeps the box. The boy, the boyfriend doesn't seem super upset about that. He seems like, okay, yeah, you, you hang on to this thing. I, he vaguely says something about like, oh, we'll try and sell it on eBay or some shit. Like it's got to be worth money or whatever, but that doesn't go anywhere. So she takes it back to the house. She gets into an immediate fight because they were drinking while they were on their little heist. The brother, you know, is, uh, he detects that she's drunk. They get into a huge fight. She runs away. Boyfriend, the brother kicks her out. And again, very screamy scene. Lots of screaming. Yeah. Um, you know, she, she pushes him to finally say like, I, you know, get the F out of my house kind of thing. Like I have to hear you say it. You have to tell me, get out of my house. And he's like, fine, I will. And so like the, then we get poor Colin, um, lovely, sweet, innocent Colin. The the one uh, likable character in this movie, Colin, Matt's boyfriend. Matt's boyfriend, who's done nothing other than be a yeah. supportive boyfriend. <laughs> other than and, just be like a really sweet guy. <laughs> yeah. So like, that's the crazy thing is like Colin, if, if we were going to follow the original Hellraiser sort of setup, Colin should eventually transition to the main character of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's the truly, he's the one who truly doesn't deserve anything from the Cenobites and would have no interest in them. Right. Um, but there are a lot of people in this movie get murdered for basically no reason. But so a couple of new things get introduced about the box. One is this cut, right? This stinger that pops out when you solve a phase of it. Because the puzzle box now has phases, seven configurations. And each of these configurations and this isn't really truly explained, has a reward of some kind. And if you go through all seven configurations, basically feed the box, feed the Cenobites seven people, six people, I guess, to push it into the seventh configuration, whatever, then um, you get granted the audience, which is what we saw at the beginning with the art collector guy, and you can request something. You can request a thing from the Cenobites, which just seems like a bad idea. Doesn't seem like a thing you would want, but you know, I guess we'll go with it. I'm I'm fine with expanding the lore of the box and how it works. Sure. I don't really I don't really care. It's fine. It's is it necessary? I don't think so. Um, does it give it more stuff to mine for future sequels? Probably. Which again got to think that's part of this. But so now when you solve a piece of the box, a little stinger pops out and it, it stabs you and your blood gets on the box. And now the Cenobites own you. That's it. They've got your scent now. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's really (laughs) like a, we've tasted your blood. You are ours now. And it's like, okay. okay, All right. It's a little silly. Um, but sure. Um, but so the, the general effect is that it, it must have 
some kind of poison effect on you because the people like get real dizzy and they can't move and they get stuck and it's almost like a sedative of a kind. Uh, again, I don't know if I need to fully understand what this process is, but the movie seems obsessed with showing me the process over and over and over again. So yeah. I'm kind of like, yeah, you got stabbed. They're coming. You've, uh, this is the fourth it's time it's happened. I, I get it. Like, I understand. You don't need this, but sure. Um, so she goes to sleep in her car on this very Massachusetts street. That's definitely not Serbia. Definitely. She goes to sleep in her car and then decides not to sleep in her car, but she grabs the box and she goes and sits on a playground merry-go-round. And even though she, there is a pretty good scene where she like dumps a bunch of ecstasy out onto the ground. What I presume is ecstasy. And then she, I think it was Oxycontin. Was it Oxy? Okay. Either way, I, I I don't know these things. I'm a very <laughs> boring Midwestern man. That's um, why I'm up. here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank drug you. Drug knowledge, McGee. Know drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I know the drugs. <laughs> um, but so she takes like three of them and uh, picks them up off the ground, like the filthy, filthy ground, and uh, then takes them, and then she's like just gonna zone out on this this merry-go-round. Um, co- beautiful, lovely Colin. Tells the boyfriend, tells Matt, her brother is like, go get her. Like, come on, man, don't be this. This this is all stupid. This is dumb. Stop being dumb. And uh, so he goes out and he finds her, but she has just solved the box before she collapsed. And she basically the movie uses drug use to let characters see the symbiote, the, the Cenobites. And then not and then think they're hallucinating. And the movie does this again like three times. Yeah. Is like, but we know we they're it. real. Like, you don't have to keep doing this. Like, we know they're real and we know that they're coming. So, but they don't she, know. <laughs> but they don't know. And that's what matters. You got to reiterate that. And so the hell priest begins appearing to her because she solved the box. She doesn't get cut by it, she avoids that. But apparently, solving the box will still draw the Cenobites to you. They just can't kill you they don't have your scent yet and this is again where like if if you're gonna add more mechanics to this lore please think about it (laughs) like just think about it so what is the triggering moment in the original it was just i opened the box cinnabites come for me right oh no (laughs) but now in this one i can open the box and the cinnabites can start appearing to me but they just can't hurt me, but they can freak me the fuck out apparently. But until I get all stabby stabby with the little, the little box thing, they can't do anything to me. Yeah. And I don't know, man, that just seems like a real minimal distinction, like a real silly thing. It's just an extra complication that doesn't need to be there. I guess there is a component where she says, if you don't want this, like the hell priest says, if you don't want this, you need to give the box to somebody else. And that's why they appeared to her to say like, Hey, you know, you open the box. Congratulations. If you don't want what we have to offer, you need to give the box away. It's like, does that need to be stated? Did you need to show up and like, deliver the user instructions. Yeah, like, <laughs> like a little manual falls out of yeah, the box. Yeah, it's like, 
It's like the hell priest is like the the stereo instructions. Like, ah, I've completed the box. Download our app by for the- a complete set of instructions. Step one, complete the box. Step two, be stabbed by the box. Sub step two a. If not stabbed by the box, st- proceed to step five. Step five, <laughs> give box to someone else. There's this IKEA instructions to go to IKEA to build the uh, build the box. Like again, I understand it's a really simple concept in the original films, but if you're going to complicate it, it needs to make sense. And I don't feel like this did for me. Um, yeah, this this didn't didn't really work for me. It was just a little bit unnecessary. It just it felt like it was trying to add layers that didn't need to be there. And it also allows someone to solve the box, but then not, I mean, so I mean, in essence, what we get in this movie is Riley solving all of the stages of the box from the puzzle side, but somehow never being stabbed by it, but then being able to use the stab to wreak vengeance. Yeah. (laughs) And that becomes a little bit weird. So, Okay, let's we'll run through this. Matt gets stabbed by the box. So he goes Can, to grab the box, he gets stabbed, and then he gets taken in a bathroom just like the opening of Silent Hill 2. Which again, I'm fine with people referencing Silent Hill. I really am. But in this movie, oh my god. Like, dude, it's a if you want to make if you want to make a Silent Hill movie, just go make a Silent Hill movie. Please. please. <laughs> like, like I would, we love, would love it. would love that. But so Matt gets taken out in a bathroom. Um we get to see the 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 one of the other ways that the Cenobites have entered into places in an interesting way is that the walls open up, right? Like basically they just, their dimension hooks up to ours, the walls open up and then they just emerge. Right. And so the movie does a lot with that. That is pretty cool. I mean, it's, you know, it's a neat effect. Uh, We do get an interesting update to that capability a little bit later in the movie in terms of like what happens if you're in motion, you know, that kind of thing. Cause I, I vaguely remember people being like, what if you open the box on a plane? How can the Cenobites show up on the plane? You know, like that. Well, they're interdimensional beings, so. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't really matter. But this film answers that question somewhat definitively. Um, So, again, Matt gets taken, and then that becomes, at least for a chunk of the film, Riley's driving motivation. She believes that she can somehow get Matt back. And so she's going to solve this puzzle (laughs) (laughs) um, to, to figure out what happened to her brother. Cause he just disappears. Right. And there's like a police report and everybody's like, where is he? And she's like, I don't know. And they find a little bit of blood and, and that's it. So, you know, there's, that was one angle. A, a lot of the Hellraisers are also police procedurals. So it wasn't desperate to see like cops and detectives trying to solve the mystery thing. I'm fine with that, that they didn't go that route. And that's probably preferable. I'm, I'm cool with it. Um, but I, I kind of wanted there to be a little bit more of the like investigation, like what's going on here kind of thing. It might have um, helped. Maybe. Um, maybe. Then Riley. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think his film needed more characters, I, I guess <laughs> is probably what I'm saying. But so Riley begins investigating. Boyfriend again has strange answers to things. He knows more about stuff than it's obvious that he's letting on. They find out about the art collector dude, find out about an assistant that he had who happens to be in a mental institution or something, a hospital close by. So they go and visit her and she gives a a few tantalizing details before also trying to steal the box and getting stabbed by it. So a lot of the second act of this film uh, are set pieces, 
right, of, of various characters being tracked and hunted by the Cenobites after being stabbed by the box. Um, boyfriend seems to have a lot of answers, seems to know a lot more than he lets on. They're able to work out who owned the warehouse that they stole the box from, so they try to backtrack that, and they end up finding the lawyer, the assistant, right? And so um, she gets stabbed by the box when she realizes that they have it, She's trying to help them, I suppose, um, but then is taken by the Cenobites. And that's really the scene where we get introduced to the Cenobites fully, right? Because with Matt's taking, we really just see some images of the Hell Priest, and then that's kind of it. In this one, we get to see some of the new Cenobites, the Gasp, um, who gets a lot of screen time in this one. Maybe too um, much. I Yeah. I, the I didn't design like of, that one. The design of the Gasp is real strange. I didn't... I didn't understand the configuration of the flesh and the head and how all of that was together. Like a lot of it just didn't really work for me. And and that's one of the full body suits that we see a lot of, and a lot of it doesn't look very good. Um, so um, the uh, gasp, what was the other one? What's the lady with the, she's got like the bow on her. Well, the gasp is the one that's like the patient demon. I was thinking of the other one. The one with like the arced head. I don't know what that one is. Um, uh, maybe that is Gasp. That I don't, is I the don't, Gasp. That yeah. is the Gasp. Okay, that's the one I was talking about then. So what's the other one? Is that Asphyx? Is that the yeah. asphyxiated one? Okay. Yeah, the patient demon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gasp played by Selena Lowe. Yeah. So, I mean, again, the design's fine. I don't really love it. And, and so, but we see her get um, chained up and flayed and whatever. And apparently that's a lady from succession. I, I don't watch succession, so I don't know, but people were very yeah, excited that she was in it, whatever. Um, so whatever. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so they continue to try and backtrack. They eventually find the guy's house and they're going around inside. And then there's like this weird, like hunchback of Notre Dame thing where <laughs> the art, like the art guy is still alive, but he's like living in the walls of the house. I'm like, dude, the house is a, the house is abandoned. Why are you living in the walls? Like, you can just be in the house. Just be in the house. Like, what difference does it make? But I, I guess maybe he's just in the walls when he knows like company's coming. <laughs> it's a real Phantom of the Opera thing. It's a real Phantom of the Opera thing. Yeah, it's, it's the sanctuary. <laughs> but uh, so. They they arrive at the house. Of course, we get a little bit of an exposition dump via journal, and and like uh, Riley figures out that the box has different configurations. It has to be fed. You know all of these notes, and then you know we get a couple of interesting scenes because they know now that if you get stabbed by the box, bad shit happens, right? Like they're they're aware of that. So then it becomes about. And again, this is this is a problem with all horror movies. Hellraiser is is not exempt from this, but just the number of times that characters IQs just sharply drop in horror movies and not, and are not consistent with how they behaved before. is just so frequent. It's like, cause like they find that there's this elaborate, like panel of switches, like there's switches everywhere in this fucking house. And if you tap them, they close doors and open doors and, make music play and none of them are labeled. None of them are labeled and no one can figure out or remember what they do. And it's just like, what? So like a girl gets trapped in the secret tunnel walls, Nora, who's like a friend of theirs 
It was like, as, as soon as they started like laying out who these characters were, I was like, oh, well, she's definitely going to die. It doesn't <laughs> matter. She's not emotionally connected to any of these events. And so, and that's exactly what happens. They, uh, the art guy, because they keep leaving the box around. They just like leave it places. Like, oh, it must this, be very heavy. This murder box, we're just going to leave it in my backpack in the corner. And obviously it'll be fine. It's like, just keep an eye on it, man. Like, just keep it close. Wear the backpack. Anything. But it's just like, so it, big. <laughs> so it's so large and it keeps changing, right? It just keeps changing configurations and then it like feels weird against my back. It's weird. So art guy steals the box and then uses that to stab Nora, right? To be the next sacrifice. Because what we find out is that he's still alive and this whole thing has been a ruse. It's been a plan of him to feed the box again to have another audience with the Cenobites because wah, wah, the Cenobites didn't give him what he thought he was going to get. Like, uh, no, no shit. Really? The Cenobites? I, I went, Duplicitous? I went, I went to the crazy hell priests and they didn't give me unending pleasure like I thought they would. Well, yeah. No. Well, I never. Gosh dang. Who would have thunk? And so... <laughs> So he's trying to feed the box again in order to uh, reverse what was done to him, which again, why would you believe uh, them? Yeah, that's a non-starter. Like, obviously that's not going to be anything that you want. Like, well, Um, the Cenobites have hurt me before, but I figure they're due for it now. They'll they'll, they'll make good on this promise. Right. It's it's like the genie. It, like they're not genies, right? They're not like grant you a wish people. Like I don't and I that may be the inclusion here that I like the least. That in any circumstance you could go to the Cenobites and request something. I know I guess Christy kinda has that happen at the end of two, where she's able to make them back off or something, but it, the idea that there would be some sort of deal that you could strike and then you would come out on the other end of that deal better off is just what, what kind of moron do you have to be to think that's the case after seeing what they do to people, which you would have to see it. Oh, at least six times or so to get to that point. So it's, it's, that's almost like, I'm not going to say it's bad. It's just, it's a choice that I don't fully understand why you would make it. Like, I don't know why as a writer you would say like, oh, this is what the guy's trying to do. Also, why is the artist going about it this way? I don't know. He didn't seem to have an issue throwing fancy parties and getting, you know, randy teenagers to come over to his house. Well, now he's got this nerve machine attached to him so he can't throw sexy parties he probably spent all of his money trying to get that nerve machine removed <laughs> but he had like little acolytes running around for him doing all the hard work anyway well but you so see was, this nerve so like, machine is really in the way <laughs> really in the way because again all of the cenobites and stuff have like weird little mechanical things so apparently this guy asked for extreme pleasure like all the pleasures of the world hedonist stuff and the Cenobite solution for that was to embed his chest with a machine that constantly pulls his nerves. So he's in just unending pain, right? Because again, Cenobite's pain pleasure, pain pleasure. You get it. 
Well, it was so technically sensation that he sensation. asked for. Sensation. That's true. Which That's is, right. he wasn't is specific. much more ambiguous because you can feel a lot of things that are terrible. True. And that's Sensation what they made is him not feel. always good. And so he's trying to undo this, but I'm like, this seems especially convoluted. So it makes me wonder, okay, did, did the lawyer after this happened and all of this fell apart, did she steal the box and then hide it in the shipping crate, like away from him? And he's now just discovered where it was. And so he has this, this the little boyfriend guy running around to try and find someone to get the box and then feed the box. But it just seems ex- he had already done this once before via relatively straightforward methods. Why all this? Why, why all these histrionics? Right? Just, well, then why not just, just kidnap people? Just kidnap people. Right? Just pay people to kidnap other people. You know, send the, the dude, Go send on. the dude to like a a shelter or something, and say, "I'll give you fifty dollars if you get in the van." Whatever, yeah, <laughs> like, then knock him out. There are so many box, different ways you could have box. gone about this. You didn't have to lure people, right? Especially like sending him to it to AA meetings to find junkies. Yeah. So what was going to happen when Riley got taken? He was going to take the box and then go find another junkie. Like what? Like was, this seems like it would take a really long time. It would take Whereas forever. And if you just super kidnapped people, you can knock that out in a weekend. Yeah. I do. Again, it's fine over the course of the film. You don't really think about it, but the moment you start sort of trying to unspool what this dude's trying to do, oh, it's like a house and of how cards. he's trying to do it. It's like, it doesn't work. <laughs> But so um, Naomi, the, the girl gets stabbed in the back and they try to escape the house in the dude's van. But then we see the Cenobites like they open. They open the portal in the van and then they just kill her in the back of the van and nobody sees it or recognizes it except in the rearview mirror. And I will say that scene was really the first one that we got to see, like the chains in full effect. And they're sort of like suspending her and bending her and, you know getting ready to rip her skin off or whatever. But you know, that is like a modern wire rig that can do that kind of stuff. So that looks cool, right? Whereas before you really just saw like shot of chain extending, going into fake flesh, pulling on it, you know, like there was, it was a little bit more difficult to do, but this one, you get a little bit fuller understanding of how the chains can, can manipulate people. So they kill Nora because of course she got stabbed by the box, right? So that's how you die. You didn't have to solve the box. You didn't have to do anything. You just get stabbed by the little stabby thing. So the box changes again. And they're being chased. They go back to the house because boyfriend insists that they need to go back to the house. Mm. 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 Why mm. would he insist? Mm. Um, and then one of the most bonkers things happens. And I, I get it. Uh, it makes a certain sense, but it sort of upends a lot of things. They're trapped by the chatterer, right? They get trapped behind a gate because <laughs> they were trying to open the gate and then the gate opened and then they got stuck behind the gate and pressed against the wall. I really don't want to think much about that scene because again, it's just the IQs of our main characters dropping sharply. Just, <sighs> we were, we were operating efficiently. We're going to get back to the house and be safe, blah, blah, blah. But then we'll get out of the thing and open the gate. Just, we got <laughs> stupid all of a sudden. And so then they're trapped by the chatterer and they stab the chatterer with the box. And 
I thought this was a really funny moment. I didn't, I mean, I'm sure maybe it was supposed to be serious, but I thought it was funny because it, was it cuts so right straight. to Pinhead and it's like, you motherfucker. <laughs> it's like, well, we had not the, thought of that. Them's the rules, Jack. You got, <laughs> you got poked with the little pokey thing. Sorry. And, and yeah, so then Pinhead calls the chains and Chatter just gets ripped right in half. Right. Um, which given what we see at the end of this film and what it takes to create a Cenobite seems like they would be loath to destroy one of their own. But again, them's the rules of pleasure and pain, right? You got stabbed with the little stabby box. Now you must suffer ultimate pain. It's just the way it goes, man. Yeah. Uh, and you already suffered it once. And so I did like that. He kind of just stops and steps back. Like he's ready for it. You know, like, ah, oh, I know what's coming and this is going to be, exquisite or whatever pinhead would say <laughs> it was it's very much like a exquisite. Ah, good one <laughs> yeah nice <laughs> job there <laughs> buttholes i can't believe you pulled that off <laughs> and and so chatterer dies they run to the house and they figure out of course now that the house and this is actually a very hellraiser 4 thing that the house is sort of a cage designed to hold cenobites Right, that this was again, I guess, part of the artist's and none of this plan. is explained how this works, no. or why it works. I mean, you can kind of see it when they pull up to the house, and all of like the exterior grading and everything is in place. That it's, you know, sort of a little box of its own. So I mean, it's fine. It's interesting, but I don't know why it's a cenobite repellent. Yeah, they don't seem to be able to get through it, and I, I and that doesn't make a lot of sense because you know chains. Um, chains go through tiny gaps and things. And if they really wanted to chain you, it seems like they could, but they don't, they just kind of hang out outside, kind of chill. It's like a force waiting. Right. And I I think there was an implication at one point that it might be electrified. Um, because there were some sparks and stuff, but I don't know what that was exactly. Um, but people touch the cage all the time. So I don't know if that's true. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it, it does, if that's true, it doesn't hold. It's not behaving true. by any rules that I'm aware of in the <laughs> Hellraiser universe. Like no, maybe no. it's made out of some like anti-Cenobite mithril. Yes. It's to reference rings of power. Yes. It's <laughs> mithril. It's anti-Cenobite mithril. That's what I will refer to it as from here on out. <laughs> it's what will save the Cenobite race if they can just have <gasps> a little bit more of it. Um, yeah. We're going to do that's another episode on humans. that garbage. <laughs> Yeah, we need the humans for the anti-Cenobite mithril. Uh, yeah, so in any case, they 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 bring the cage down and they're relatively safe for a few moments. But they realize that they need more victims to complete the configuration. Because Riley has it in her head now that if she holds the box, she gets the spike and can answer or, or and can complete the configuration, that she can ask for Matt back. And she can request that he be resurrected, even though we already saw she had a vision of him earlier where like all of his back skin had been torn off. So, and you know, you take one look at the Cenobites. Do you really think they're going to help you? Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing is like these characters keep operating. Like there's, there's some scenario in which they can get everything that they want out. of. None of these people have faces in any technical (laughs) form. Like they're, they have flesh ripped off. Like I just, they just right. don't look like they're going to be very sympathetic to your cause. 
it certainly doesn't look like they're going to enter into any kind of binding legal contract where they make an agreement that's going to help you out. Like this isn't a car deal, right? Where you're going to shake hands. Cenobites like, don't have lawyers. Got it. No, no. Like there's, there's nothing there. They're demons. Like they're just demons. That's the point. So then we get probably uh, the third act for me was the most exciting. Like things are moving, right? Attacks are happening, Cenobite danger, you know, the stuff that we kind of should have had a little bit more of that sense throughout the entire film, a little bit more of that momentum. But so the third act, once they're in the house and oh, we've got gates and we can trap them and we can stall their movements and stuff, fine, it's whatever. The betrayal of the boyfriend is revealed. He was working with the art collector all along to feed the box so that the art collector could have his second audience and ask for his previous request to be undone. Right? Like that's what he's looking to have done here, which again, seems like folly from the beginning. It didn't work out the first time. What makes you think it's going to work this time? But regardless, uh, all of that kind of comes to a head. They end up letting in one Cenobite, which that whole sequence was kind of silly. I'll admit, like they just like a time waster. Yeah. You're like, okay, we're going to open the gate and lure one in. And and then when we lure that one in, we'll kill it with the box and then that'll be another victim and we'll get closer without actually having to sacrifice anybody else. Very silly because again, well, I guess the main reason why is the Colin and Riley who go outside, they have not touched the box so they can't be murdered, right? Like they can't be compromised. Um, so the hell priest who could theoretically just fling chains at them and hold them can't, I guess, which again, that whole thing just feels real dumb. Like the Cenobites are literally just standing outside, seemingly powerless to do anything. And I just don't know if that's where you want to put your big horror villains at the end of your film, them just like standing just outside of the out. house, you know, cause we get a lot of cool long shots of the hell priest just watching, just totally calm but it chilled it, out it had the the energy of like oh she's gonna do something oh she's just watching because it's mm -hmm. building up to something and then pfft, nothing Not happens really. yeah no nope, she's gonna walks in later that's pretty much it not that and, like and, I want her to start doing kung fu or anything. That's not what I'm asking for because I feel like somebody I might I hear that and say like, well, you know what would be really cool? Kung fu Cenobite. That's what we need in the sequel. That's what I want. It just starts kicking and chains come out everywhere. It'd be great. Uh, you know, it's, I know it's supposed to be intensity. Again, Bruckner, a lot of his theories about horror, he, he is a very quiet horror director. And, and for the most part, I like that. Um, I think that in the films that he's made, you know, he he very carefully parses out his big moments, right? Like the ritual is a super slow burn, like crazy slow burn. But when it hits, it hits. And this movie, he does a lot of the same things. But because it's a Hellraiser movie, you can't. Well, you could, honestly, because the original Hellraiser is a slow burn. When the slow burn and the little bits that we get throughout most of this film up until act three, what we get in act three, in my opinion, is not big enough to justify the slow burn, right? Like the, when it yeah. hits, it doesn't really hit that hard yeah. aside from the fact, and this was my biggest thing. It took me out of the movie, which is just never good 
a good thing. So they, they let this one Cenobite in, the, the Asphyx or whatever, the, the patient demon from Silent Hill 2. And their goal was to trap it and stab it to have, you know, the, the victim count go up. It was really funny when it gets stuck in the gate. And it gets stuck in one of the gates, right? So you That's just, the funniest thing I've ever seen. Just this Cenobite stuck in this gate and it can't get out. And then there's all this like back and forth. The art in, the art collector is like out in the main gallery because it's all in the gallery from the beginning, right? The little art institution, which we do get a couple of Easter eggs at the beginning. I guess we forgot to mention that. One of them, I assume, was supposed to be Frank's diary, right? Like he's got that on the little pedestal. And then the other one's like the brain scooper thing from Hellraiser 2, right? Did you see those? I didn't even notice that. Yeah, like one of the artifacts that he had was... It's like that little whirly gig thing that the yeah. professor has his brain dug out with at the end. <laughs> um, you know, like, but there were a couple little things there. And then he's got like a book that looks a lot like, like Frank's journal diary. I guess the one that Christy finds in Hellraiser one. So there's a couple little Easter eggs for the fans, you know? Um, but so the art instructor, art collectors out there and he's trying to like orchestrate all of this just to finish the box so he can get his audience, even though the whole priest is right there, just go outside and ask her a question. She's just standing there. Um, but, uh, she loses the box and then the art instructor comes out with the box and he stabs Colin, right? I keep calling him the art instructor, the art collector. He maybe was an art instructor in the past. Maybe that's what he loved was art. <laughs> and then he found the Cenobite stuff and he's like, no, I love Cenobites. I don't know. So he stabs Colin. And of course, Colin is, is like the only true innocent in this film. Like he's literally the best character in a bunch of ways. Cause Riley's kind of a, I mean, she's trying to do the right thing, but she just keeps making stupid choices over and over again. So Colin gets stabbed and now Riley has like a reason to try and, and stop his, the Cenobites coming for him, but they're trapped outside. They can't get inside. And so this is where the art collector drops like his big, here's what happened to me exposition. Right. And like all these characters are listening, right. To his, his big, here's my story. Right. Like all this (laughs) stuff. And like, while that is happening, you must remember when you watch this dear audience, if you haven't seen it yet, is that there is a ravenous Cenobite trapped in a gate, Stuck in a gate. right? Right to his left. Right? And like he he's just, just like quit right... moving after a while. He's like, well, I guess yeah, I'm just, just stuck like, in oh, this gate. Stuck in the gate, I guess. Me out. I'm just a Cenobite over here stuck in a gate. <laughs> I'm, I'm like your mother-in-law at a subway terminal. <laughs> just Oops. Can't get through this little thing here. I don't know what I'm <laughs> supposed to do. And like, there's one shot where you can kind of see it wriggling behind him, blurred out. But like, there's tons of insert shots of Riley, like with these pained expressions on her faces as he's talking. Like, she's absorbing what he's saying. Is like, you are literally looking through a Cenobite right now. <laughs> like, there is a monster in front. And of like, you. what was the Cenobite doing? What was it just, thinking about? Just chilling, you know. It's like I know this story. I was there, man. I saw it all. And so, like that for me was like, oh, guys, <laughs> like guys i mean it's fine if you want your big like reveal about what the art collector has been up to for the last six years sure i get that but the just the way the characters everything dead stops for him to deliver this exposition 
even the struggling Cenobite trapped in the game. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, damn it. Why did you do this? Just sequence this differently. Just have him give that, at, you know, around the same time. But the whole thing is like she was being chased by the Cenobite. That's why she dropped the box. And then the other guy was able to pick it up. And so, like, again, the betrayal of the boyfriend is revealed. So now he's a target. And, and of course, they have to open the gates to, you know, try and, and you know, resolve this in some way. And so she, the, I guess one creepy moment, she crawls between the legs of the Cenobite to get out of her little space that she's in. And she's trying to run around and open all the gates to upend what the art collector is trying to do, whatever. Which I will say the contraption they've got on him is very cool. They really did with all of them try to like incorporate the mechanical elements of the puzzle box, the lament configuration into everything, almost implying like there is technology in the Cenobites world. And if there is, it looks like this. It's like, okay, sure. Very nice. It's an interesting visual thing. So everything resolves. The gasp comes after Colin and he runs down into some weird little sex dungeon that the art collector had that they don't really show. There's just a bunch of like weird Boz reliefs on the wall of people having sex. And then there's like a round bed in the middle. It's very, I think this is what a sex dungeon would look like. You guys? You know, it's, like it's like, no, I, I, I mean, I don't know, but it just seems kind of lame. <laughs> it's cheesy. It's just like a cheesy, like standard, like red buttoned leather everywhere. Kind of like, okay. Like, yeah, this reads as a sex dungeon, I guess. Sure. And so it, he goes down there and he's being attacked, which was the thing that just totally bewildered me was that she opens up all the gates to accomplish her goal, not realizing that she's also exposed Colin to one of the Cenobites. And I was like, dude, you just, you suck. Like you yeah. suck so bad. And it, like, you couldn't have found another way to do this or figured out what switch only opens one of the doors. Like what? So she puts Colin in danger, but he's being slowly killed with, piano wire or something garrett wire and starts screaming as you would and so she goes downstairs with bad boyfriend and then there's like this moment where the cenobite's like oh would you suggest another and i'm like but you've shown me like five times in this movie that if you get stabbed by the box you die but now because it's in the final configuration because he hasn't been killed yet, but he's been stabbed by the box. Now she's holding it and the Cenobites have to like do what she says, which again feels very problematic. So it's like, well, what if you just put it in that configuration and then you never take it out of that configuration? Do they have to obey you forever? I, that all of that just seems really problematic. Like all of this, like box shifting configuration stuff is like, I don't know if you guys thought this thing through, maybe you're going to explore it in a sequel. Maybe, I don't know. But in this movie, it's like, she runs downstairs. She's got the spike or whatever. And the Cenobite is totally like dead stop. Like, Oh, you want to, you want to sacrifice somebody else? I mean, like I'm over here sacrificing this guy, but if you've got something else in mind, I'm, I'm good with that. I mean, this guy's nice and everything, but if you've got someone else, I mean, I'm okay. I mean, I'm over <laughs> here. I'm willing to do what you think is best. You know, like there's this real weird, like the Cenobites taking advice from the victim. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. 
So she stabs the, the fake boyfriend. And then the Cenobite's like, okay, I'll take him instead. Totally fine. So he gets laid out on the weird, uh, you know, round bed. Almost gets degloved. They didn't fully deglove, which I, I'll admit. Thank you. I've seen yeah. a lot of that in recent horror. I don't necessarily don't need, need to, to see, see it that. again. But it's implied. It's implied he's going to be degloved. You know, the hand that he, he masturbated with or something will be <laughs> the hand that he loses because he's a bad, sexy boy. And 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 so he gets sucked straight to hell. Like the portal just opens and he gets pulled down like a big a well or something. I don't know. And and he gets taken away to hell. The art collector has his audience with Pinhead, which I don't know why they grant all the wishes. I'm not sure what that was about. Um, but they give him his wish as well. And he says, I want to be healed. I don't want this big thing in my chest anymore. And they're like, okay, that's fine. And I will say that scene was genuinely good when all that stuff was just like falling out of him. And then we get a, a CG like reassembly of his internal organs, uh, which it's okay. It was, it was good. I mean, you can, again, probably some budget constraints there, um, but it had, it was, it was goopy in the way that I would expect a Hellraiser thing to be like, it didn't lose. I like the that when factor. his spine reformed, that was yes. neat. That was good. That was good. But it made me wonder how was he walking around without a spine? Yeah, you yeah. just can't. I mean, as like soon as I saw that the thing missing. went all the way through him, I was like, "That's that just seems mm. like." I mean, I know we're talking about supernatural magic, but that just seems like that would be inefficient. I don't know. And he did hunch. I will say that he was kind of hunched <laughs> with that in him. So maybe that's why. Like the bottom part of his spine was fine, but the upper part, upper part was you know not the greatest. But, you know, you sever somebody's spine, other things happen. I will say that. But, I mean, that's, maybe that's where the nerves went, right? They ran them through the machine. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe. Who knows? It's unclear. <laughs> Many things unclear. Uh, so he gets his wish, and then there's a nice exchange between him and Clayton where, you know, Clayton's like, oh, you never wanted pleasure. You wanted power. And he's like, yeah, yeah, power. Power's good. I like power. I'll take some power. And then like giant chain just comes out of the sky because like the big, <laughs> the big, the big spike is above him. Right. What it made me, what it made me think of was the Simpsons in the Stonecutters episode when they're like, detach the stone of shame and detach the stone of triumph. The <laughs> <laughs> right. so giant chain flies out of the sky, spears him in the chest, lifts him up and and we get the creation of a new Cenobite, which we hadn't really seen since Hellraiser 2. Because that's what happens yeah. to like the bad guy of Hellraiser 2. Um, he becomes a, a new Cenobite. And so we get to see him being formed into some, some new Cenobite that I presume we'll see in future Hellraiser sequels, if they occur. Which they probably will. Um, you know, and that's, that's fine. That's cool. Um, I mean, that ending in and of itself was fine. Uh, Riley and Colin survive, although Colin is fucked up um in a severe way but they make it through and uh and the big you know sort of end for riley is that riley is holding the spike so she gets her wish and and the cenobites tempt her with you know bringing matt back which we know is there's no way that that's going to turn out good you know and so she says that she will choose to live with her actions, right? Which is supposed to be her moment of character growth, which is 
works, right? Okay. So yeah. she's, she's been running from her, her faults, from her addictions for so long. Now she is willing to own up to her mistakes, right? This, I really kind of would have liked if the show would have built into, since she's supposed to be in like AA or something anyway, that the show would have maybe that the movie would have built into that a little bit. Cause most people yeah. are really familiar with the structure of, of something like Alcoholics Anonymous, right? You make your reconciliations, you go to the people and ask for forgiveness, right? Like there's this program. We never see her engaging with that. We never see way. her engaging with that. Maybe even just a scene at the beginning where they went through the steps and I didn't, and she said, Oh, I'm, I'm not even on step one, you know, or whatever. Or like and, if instead of the first meeting we have of her, is her fucking the boyfriend? If maybe it was mm-hmm. her at a meeting at a meeting. Yeah, totally. Like, I think that would have reinforced that. And it would have reinforced that she's been running from this, from owning these mistakes. And now at the end, she's willing to finally basically take step one of truly recovering after this crazy experience. But that leads us back to the lament configuration. So the box reforms, she's chosen lament, regret, whatever you want to call it. And, and she gets to live. Right. And then, and pinhead seems surprised like, Oh, you want to live? Huh? Respect. Nice. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's really like a nice kind of moment. Like, well done. You, you, you figured it out. Like, because like, again, if in the world of the Cenobites, this makes a lot of sense because she now must live with this pain forever. Right. Which is, one of the worst pains, like the emotional pain is also pretty rough. And so I liked that. I think the Cenobites think that's really hardcore. Like, Oh my God, you want to be sad for the rest of your life? Are you crazy? They're throwing up the devil horns in the back, right? If chatter was still alive, (laughs) you'd be back there being like, yeah, (laughs) you know, you did it. Maybe they would have brought back the CD flinging, Hellraiser, <laughs> Cenobite, and he would have put on like a Megadeth song or something like, you did it. a CD player like um, built into the top of his skull. Totally. Yeah. And he's just like sliding in new tracks all the time. And then every once in a while, just to get on the other Cenobite's nerves, he's like, Jimmy Buffett marathon. They should let us design Cenobites. <laughs> I think we come up with some cool stuff. I want that job. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that's the basic thrust of it. It does end really well, which is why I think a lot of people are coming out of this saying, oh, this is really good. Because I think the ending is very strong. It's it's the strongest part of the film. Even though I have issues with the minutia of what's going on, the emotional thrust of the film culminates really nicely. The Cenobites get a nice little series of moments at the end where they actually get to do more than just be menacing, right? There's actually some conversation and stuff. Um, and in general, I think visually the film is, is pretty strong at this point. Uh, the house is, is a great design. The whole like lament configuration of the house itself is very interesting. You know, there's, there's cool stuff happening here and it definitely cooler stuff than we've seen in a Hellraiser movie in literally decades. So I am fine with somebody watching this being like, this is super awesome. Hellraiser. I have some issues with it, but I still think it's, it's a nice sort of palatable remake slash reboot reboot slash reimagining slash just another one of these, you know, it's, it's good. Um, again, I think a stronger main character that I gave more of a shit about would have meant a lot. And I don't think that an addict is a bad choice for that, but I think this, 
I think that balance could have been struck better with this character because I kind of didn't care. You know, I, I was not invested in her success in the way that I hoped to be. Um, again, I cared more about Colin, more about like sweet boyfriend. Yeah, <laughs> he was he was way more a character. like because when I saw him get starting to get you know tortured by cinema, I was like, oh man, that sucks. No, like he doesn't deserve that. Don't do that to him. And and so like if that could have been transported onto like the main character, like the one I'm supposed to be following, that would have been kind of cool. So uh, I guess we'll wrap up. We've we've hit all the major high points here. We don't necessarily have to belabor the point anymore. I think it's a strong Hellraiser film. Definitely the strongest we've seen in a long time. Production design, pretty solid, despite obvious budget limitations. Really excellent work out of Jamie Clayton as the Hell Priest slash Pinhead. Uh, some spotty creature effects. Again, you know, silicone suits are only going to get you so far. I think a, a hybridized version of the Cenobites old and new might've been a better approach. Um, some of the new Cenobite designs, not super hot on those either. Yeah. They were fine, but not, not all that interesting. I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not saying I want like the TV head one or anything, but if you're going to swing for new Cenobites, really, really push for something interesting. And, you know, some of them read better than others. Um, but yeah. So final thoughts from you. Uh, I'm, I'm about the same. The, the ending picked up in the film and kind of redeemed some of the sillier things along the way. Mm -hmm. um, in that I was just able to forget them. Cause I was like, ah, this is neat. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I, I wasn't hot on all of the Cenobite designs Really, the gasp was the one that troubled me the most because it just it it looked kind of goofy. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can't put I my finger on it. It just something about it was humorous instead of. I scary. didn't understand what they were going for with that. Like, she's the gasp is what she's called. What about that design screams gasp? Like, what is Nothing. what is going on with her? Like, I didn't I didn't get it. Like the guy that's like all wrapped up in his own skin and can't breathe. Okay, I I get that. Chatterer, obviously, Hell Priest, we we know that. You know, like, like so, some of them were like, "Yeah, I get these; these make sense." But her and she was featured so heavily; like, she has more speaking lines than I mean, she almost has as many speaking lines as Jamie Clayton. Yeah, and it's like, I don't get what what's going on with your design, like the whole archway over your head and all that stuff. Like, I I mean, I get that you're like referencing back to all of this like Renaissance era, like religious art and shit, but. But I don't, it, it I don't, went more flying nun. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just a really, it's a really strange look. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't, and this is a weird sort of moniker, I don't see myself ever like buying a figure of that to have on my desk. Mm -hmm. Like I probably wouldn't anyway. But if if I was looking at a bunch of like, you know, NECA action figures of all the various Cenobites, I'm not going to pick the gas under any circumstances. Yeah. Right. Like it's never going to happen. I might have a pinhead. Like that would be kind of interesting, but you know, it's just one of those, like, I don't know, man, it's a little off. Um, but I think Bruckner did a good job with this, with the franchise. I think if, if he was sort of encouraged to create something more palatable to today's modern horror audiences, right. You know, those teens that snuck into the conjuring at, at age 12 or, you know, you saw know, one of the who, later the saw sequels they've ever seen is insidious. Sure. Yeah. Cause this, this felt definitely... a little bit closer in, in tone to something like that. 
Yeah, there are, there are there are extreme moments of gore. Yeah, but they are really few and far between. Like there's and, like and they're four. very carefully edited so that you don't see as much as you could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the opening where you see the the young ingenue torn apart while the art collector is getting ready for his audience with the, their god Leviathan or whatever they call him. Um, you know, it's it's all blurred in the background. He's suspended from the chains. He's being torn apart. There's a lot of sound design, right? He's screaming and gurgling and all that stuff. But but like you don't see it. And in in the original Hellraiser, you would have seen it. You would have seen it. Yeah, you would have seen it. Um, and you would have felt really gross about it. But that was kind of Clive Barker's point, I think. So there are definitely some limitations here. But on the maybe whole, that's a good thing. Maybe right. for some people, they don't need to see that. Yeah, I I honestly don't know. There was such a violent overreaction to the torture porn phenomena, and rightly so. I don't care for torture porn. I really don't. Um, I you know like the hostile movies are disgusting. Um, most of Eli Roth's later output is just like unreasonably gory and disgusting. Um, and again, I understand there's a place for all of that. And and if you like that kind of thing, that's totally fine. But at the same time. I, I do have limits. Uh, the Hellraiser, the original Hellraiser doesn't really hit those limits for me. I, I could see they could for some, but this feels almost like a, a snapback too far in the other direction. We need a little yeah. bit more um, yeah, I agree to, to really be solid. So in any case, um, I think it's, it's worthy of people's time, especially if you're already a Hulu subscriber, definitely go grab a copy of it. I imagine this will be, I think they'll do a DVD release of this. I think we'll see this on physical media at some point. Whereas Given a lot of these what streaming the movies I don't know. is and how it sure. was such a such a DVD standby, like it's a it's a real midnight movie. Get your friends mm-hmm. together, watch a Hellraiser. Yeah, this will see some physical release. I hope so, and and hopefully we get some behind the scenes featurettes because this is one that I would kind of like to see more about the production and sort of how they approached it. And Same. and uh, again, I think Bruckner is a talented director. I'm excited to see what he does next. Nothing about this has made me question that he is is a a horror director to watch. Um, you know, I, I think that that remains very true. Um, again, whether or not he was the best fit for a Hellraiser movie, I don't know. But I think he's done a really good job here. Uh, I think Clayton as the new Pinhead is inspired. I hope that whoever continues the franchise, whether it's Bruckner or somebody else, that they they keep her in that role. I think she's she's very good. So. Um, whether or not we see any more of these, you know, other characters, like, I don't know if I need another picture with Riley and her struggles. Maybe might be interesting if she's still struggling with addiction at some point in the future and touches upon the Cenobites again, who knows, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, uh, so if somebody wants to find you on the internet, to talk about the Hellraiser franchise and how Hellraiser judgment is actually the best Hellraiser. Where can they find it? Uh, they can find me running my, my Hellworld clan at Baskinator on Twitter. And you can get a hold of me at T Baskin. Get us together at FPS Theater if you would so choose. And you can email us at failurepiece at gmail.com if you got something longer to say. Uh, well, like I said, thanks for hanging out while we talked about Hellraiser 2022, an exciting return to form for the Hellraiser franchise. Uh, if it's not perfect, it's still a huge step in a positive direction for a franchise that has long languished in the direct to video mode. Long languished. Long languished, right? Uh, when the biggest names you could get were a, a young Henry Cavill and Lance Hendrickson, you know something's gone bad. <laughs> so, in any case, we will be back next week to talk about more movies that may be worthy of your time, even if maybe they aren't perfect. A little failure piece, if you will. And we'll see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>